see where they're at. They, they need all of this. They need comfort. They need hope because it looks hopeless. And they also need to be instructed so that they understand really what's going on. Now the whole discourse really begins in chapter 14 in its detail. And if you just look at how it begins in chapter 14 and how it ends in chapter 16, you, you've got to admit <laughs> there's comfort there and there's hope. Look, look how it starts in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Now that's just a calming, quiet word as he sits, having done all of these things, and he just looks around the group and he says, look, let not your heart be troubled. Fellow Christian, if there's someone here this morning who's troubled, things are not going as you thought they would go. You sort of feel maybe your hopes are dashed. Or maybe there's only trouble ahead. There's failure. Listen to the words of the Master on that night in the upper room. Let not your heart be troubled. That's comfort, right? Now, go to chapter 16 and realize before he prays, notice how he finishes off. What does he say? In the world you shall, verse 33, you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. Another translation, be of good comfort. In other words, be encouraged and not downcast. Lift yourselves up. I have overcome the world. Now that gives you hope. That should give us hope in the world in which we are currently living. Do you realise that he has already overcome the world? So you see there's great hope no matter what comes to us day by day. No matter how bleak the future looks, there is hope. I have overcome the world. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it fear. There's great comfort and there's great hope. Now... In between, that is chapters through chapter 14, 15, and 16, he gives them great instruction. Remember what I said? It's a message of comfort, hope, and instruction. Now, I cannot overemphasize that point. He is teaching, teaching, teaching. Please, I will say it before, I'll say it again. I cannot overemphasize the importance of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the core teaching of the Bible are his words. Don't fall into the trap of the Gospels just being a historical record or the Gospels being good for having stories in them and parables in them to use in the Sunday school to talk to the children. The Gospels contain the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and those teachings are the core teachings of the Bible. If you want to understand your Bible properly and, and read it properly, put in the centre the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he comes, and he is the fulfilment of all the Old Testament teaching. And actually, he gives meaning and explanation of the entire Old Testament. And then in his teaching, he lays the foundation for every doctrine that is in the New Testament. There's no new doctrine invented by the apostles, no doctrine of major significance that the Lord Jesus Christ has not already set out in his teachings. So what you have here now is that final message of his teaching and many have called it the central teaching of Jesus Christ. Now that point I want you to understand and grasp if you would 
understand and read rightly the word of God and put the Lord, teachings of the Lord Jesus in the right place. Right. Upper room ministry is the particular block of teaching that we're considering. I'm not going to go through it in detail. We would be here literally for months and months and months because it's so rich and so full. I wouldn't attempt to cover that in two years, to be quite honest with you, preaching every week. But I'm going to pick out the point so that you can go home and read it intelligently for yourself and get a real blessing. I mean, these disciples would have looked back on that upper room and as, as days went by, they would have appreciated more and more what he was saying to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it fear. Believe in God, believe also in me. For I am that very God in whom you believe. And my word is as stable as the word of God Almighty himself. I am what he is. My glory is his glory. His glory is my glory. My power is his power. His power is my power. And all praise and glory and honour and blessing be unto him that sits upon the throne. We said it this morning. We were pondering it this morning. Here we are listening to, as it were, his last words of comfort as he seeks to speak and teach his disciples. So there's comfort, hope, teaching. Right. Now, you look at it and you say, well, how can we sort of just summarise it a bit so that you can get the major points and go and read it for yourself, all right? And I've summarised it like this, and it does cover it. In chapter 14, 15, and 16, first of all, overall, he's preparing them for what lies ahead because there's a huge change of things. He's going. He won't be with them, literally, all right? They are left, as it were, they would feel, on their own. So what he teaches them is, number one, what it will be like when he is gone. What it will be like to live in the world. What sort of society they will have to face when he is gone. What it will be like when he is gone. Then amazingly, he actually teaches them the benefits that will come. The benefits that they will receive. The benefits to the program of God. The benefits that will come when he is taken away from them. Now you've got to admit, you'd be sitting there going, well there can't be any benefits, we're losing him. And he's going to teach them the benefits of they will receive by his going away. That's the second one. Then he will actually explain to them what their real role in the world is while he is away. This is big. What I'm giving you is, is a, it's just, just sort of small little summary. But it, it's opening up big truths if you can read the discourse in this manner. Which is how I read it this last time. It came to me like this. The, their role in the world where he is away. And then finally, right throughout the message, he is giving them hope. My word, they, that's it. He's giving them hope. He's giving them comfort and hope for the immediate present there, for the ongoing time in between, right up until the final coming. Comfort and hope for every believer, because he's going to tell them, in my father's house there are many mansions. If I go away, I'm going to come back, because he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And in that coming day, you're going to behold my glory, and every true child of God, bowed down as it were, by the distresses of life at times, as what have we done? We've considered the glory that lies ahead. Comfort and hope, that's what he's giving. And not only so, but the comfort that he gives, and the hope that he gives, is founded on a firm foundation. It's, it's, it's a sure and certain hope that he's going to give us. It, we're going to have one that's founded on fact. All right? This is important. Comfort and hope 
founded on fact, not just mushy, silly words of sentiment that you know you can't really substantiate, right? This is going to be substantial. It's founded on fact, the fact of his support, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the fact of the coming again, and it's founded on promise. Now you can always rely on the promise. God's promises, they're unshakable. He never fails to keep them. So you've got comfort and hope, but not hollow words of mere sentiment, all right? And the hope is not sort of vague, where it's a little better than the power of positive thinking. I mean, there's a lot of that today. A lot of stupid things are said, but in actual fact, they don't come about. If you just keep thinking positive, it'll all turn out good. Well, I tried that a few times, and it didn't all turn out good. You see? There was no substance in it. But what he is giving here is the facts of why you can take comfort, why you can be of good cheer, right? Why it is you can have hope, because it's founded on his purposes, on his plans, and on his promises, and on his work. Now, that's just standing back, looking at the few chapters, the discourse, in its broad terms. Let me give it to you again. And then if you want to... <coughs> let me just say something in passing. You should never go to a sermon without a notebook somewhere stuck in your pocket. I've got myself in lots of trouble for saying that to people in the past, but you know something? I never go anywhere without a little Bible. In my Bible, there's a notebook and a pen. Something new I hear, something I know I'm going to forget, I write it down. That's how you grow. You can take it home and look at it in the week. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. I remember that now. So think about that. I say that to you young people especially. Pen and paper. I don't mean to be assiduously writing, anything like that. Just be prepared because you'll forget, right? So we're going to see what it will be like when he is gone. The benefits that will come consequent upon his going. The role of the disciple in the world while he's away. And at the same time, the comfort and the hope that the believer has until he comes back again. Right, go back to the first one. What will it be like in the world when he's gone away? What sort of world will they have to face? What sort of world does his people, all of his people will have to face? What will it be like living in the world? What sort of society will we have? And frankly, the answer is... is is uh, very alarming and very confronting, but absolutely accurate to the vast detail. Let's read. Chapter 15 we'll go to for this part of it, and we'll just wander through just to bring out the points that I have made. You look at verse 18, and I'll just read it, I think, straight off. 18 to 25. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. See, you're going to be living in a world that doesn't know me and doesn't know God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they had not had sin. But now they've got no cloak, no covering, no excuse for their sin. He that hates me 
hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father. Now this comes to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What sort of society will we, will we be living in? He says, will they be living in? And it's the same for every believer and disciple and follower of Christ. The reality is we will live in a world that doesn't know God. We will live in a world, a society that actually of hate, that's a strong word, and we will live a life in which all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not might, will suffer persecution. Now you've got to admit, this is very confronting and not always the sort of approach that people take. You look again at verse 18, and the key to verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We are followers of a rejected Christ. I mean, the world just didn't say we don't like him around. They went to utmost lengths to absolutely vilify him and scorn him and completely reject him. The death on a cross was the ultimate symbol of complete rejection and scorn for the victim, right? So one, we're following a rejected Christ. Verse 19. If the world, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Fellow Christian, what he's saying to these believers here, and what I, what I want to bring right up to date, because it applies to every disciple in every age, ultimately, that we must learn to live with hate. That's what it's saying here. They, will, they hated him, but he said the world is going to hate you. And they're going to do that because it says you are not one of the world. We are not one of them. When a person becomes a child of God, he belongs to the people of God. He has a new father in heaven. He's a new creature in Christ. He's old what he was once as a child of the devil, as a child of wrath belonging to a world that actually doesn't know God, that status has been completely removed and God has said, you are mine, like he did to Israel. He chose them out of all the nations of the earth and said, you are mine. And if you're a child of God, you are one of God's chosen people that he has chosen to have you for himself and made a distinction between you and the world, a distinction that is obvious, because you have changed. A distinction that is obvious because you are no longer behaving as you once behaved. You are no longer walking the same course as the course of the general world and society around you that doesn't know the Lord, right? So because of that, they will hate you because you are different. It is normal for the Christian to be different, unavoidably different, and therefore will arouse hate. And that's what the Lord Jesus is actually saying. I mean, we've been told a lot lately in, a, in, in all sorts of evangelical cir cir um, circles whereby, you know, you have to be sort of very apologetic and very non-threatening because if you get a negative response from people, it's because of your behaviour. It's not that at all because you're just not handling your relationships well. It's not that at all. The Bible says it's because you're different 
hate will be produced and you will suffer persecution as a consequence of that. And that is a normality. Fellow Christian, we are different. Right from the inside out. No, we're not just religious and we're not just going around scorning others and looking down our noses at them. But the fact is Christ dwells in here. I am different. I can't avoid it. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in here, which is all the teaching of this upper room discourse, which we'll be opening up later on. So we are changed within, and it's a change that you can't hide. If it's really there, it'll be seen on that which is without. Now that's what he's saying in verse 19. You're not one of them. I've chosen you out of it, and because of that, you will get a negative reaction from the world around, the society around. I always remember as a young lad, a preacher explaining it this way, he said, we used to have a lot of uh, sparrows around in those days. You don't see many sparrows today, but every house was full of sparrows, you know. Call it what other bird, whatever bird you like. He said, Do you, have you ever seen a white sparrow? And of course we go, no. Well, he said, genetically, you can have an albino sparrow, you can have a white sparrow. Uh, but he said, they, they'll never live, because the others will peck them to death. Because he's different, he'll blow their camouflage, he'll mark them out where they are, and he said, they don't tolerate it, they'll kill it, because he's different. Now that's true, something about the Christian that is so different that the society around can't tolerate the light shining in the darkness. What did the Lord Jesus do? He came and he shone the light in the darkness. What did they want to do? They didn't want to have him and so they tried to put the light out. But the darkness, the, the darkness didn't extinguish him. Never did the darkness extinguish him. So there it is, the, the learning to live with hate. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, and they did, they will persecute me. They've done it to me, they will do it to you. And he says, if they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. In other words, we will face persecution as the people of God. We will find that we will tell them the word of God we can tell them in the most gentle way, in the kindest of ways, and so we should. We tell them the way, the words of God and the need of salvation, keeping in mind ourselves how much we were sinners and we were saved by sovereign grace. And with all the compassion of God, in mercy we go out with a message of blessing and hope. But some will hear and some will not hear. After all, the Lord Jesus came and spoke the word to them. Some listened, some came, some followed, some rejected. And people don't just reject truth. They don't just reject the words of Jesus. They don't just reject the words of the gospel. They will actually get very angry about them. And they'll start to hate to hear it and go out of their way that they never hear it. And what's more, will go out of the way to often persecute those who actually preach it. That's the story of history. That's the prediction of the Lord Jesus. Actual fact that is part of the normality of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Look at verse 21. All these things will they do unto you. Why are they going to do it? He said they're going to do it for my name's sake, one, and because they know not him that sent me. And they're going to do it to you, fellow Christian, just because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you name the name of the Lord and you're not ashamed of it, are you? Never be ashamed of the name. Never. Never be ashamed to confess his name before men. 
You acknowledge him and who he is, and it is he is your Lord, and he is the Christ, and he is the one that you follow. He says, now because of my name, they're going to do it for my name's sake. Now it says in Timothy that if a man names the name of the Lord, he'll depart from iniquity. See how it all happens. You name the name of Christ, you take the name of upon you, you say, I'm a follower of him, automatically your life's different because as you follow him, so you turn away from sin. Well, the world's not turning away from sin. The course of this world, you know, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, they're going their own way in sinfulness without God. And there you are turning away like the white sparrow. You're blowing their cover. You're showing up the difference. It's got to stop, you see. Now he says it's because of my namesake and the, the consequence of that is because all because of me and they don't know he, him that sent me. They have no knowledge of God. Fellow Christians, this is starting to get a bit relevant. Alright? Because we're living in a world that no longer knows God. That's what we're getting to. Right? Verse 22 to 24 is very confronting again. He says, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. In other words, I've shown them and I've spoken to them and I've told them. Later on he says, if I've done amongst them the works which, verse 24, which no other man did. In other words, you, know, you follow the life of the Lord and you see what he did. You, know, you see the good, you see the power, you see the miracles, you see the incredible acts of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, they've seen all that, they've heard what I've said to them, but nonetheless they have deliberately and knowingly in the face of evidence. You got that? It's not just he made claims and didn't prove them. Every claim he made, he demonstrated in what he said, demonstrated in how he lived, and demonstrated in works which he did. And in the face of the evidence, despite knowing what was right, what did they do? They turned away and rejected it. They've got no further excuse for their sins. The works proved he is what, who he was. And today, fellow Christian, I'm sorry, the world can't blame God for not knowing something of the way, for not knowing something of the fact of his existence, for not bowing the knee to at least to an authority and acknowledging that there is a God who is above them. His works of creation speak every day. Don't take creation just for granted as, oh yes, but people don't listen to creation. And therefore, somehow or other, creation is not a loud enough voice. It's not a question of creation not being a loud enough voice to prove a creator God, therefore a creator of me, therefore a being above me to whom I should bow. It's not the evidence is inadequate, but the heart of man is very hard. And the work of Satan has blinded the minds of those that believe not. And he says more than that. I mean, there's a Bible in the land. There's a Bible that could be in everybody's hand. There's a Bible available to be read. There's a message that can be preached in many churches. But he says they won't come. They've no longer got a cloak. They've no longer got an excuse because everything has been shown them and every opportunity given to them. Now, this is what he's teaching, what it's going to be like when he is away. And in verse 24, they have no excuse for their sin. But, you know, when you take that on further... They actually have no cause for their hatred because in verse 25 they hated me without a cause. All right? No cause for the hatred. You see, it's right to hate at times. You should hate evil. You should. You should hate everything that's harmful 
You should hate everything that's destructive. And the Lord Jesus represented one who was holy, harmless, undefiled. There was absolutely no reason for hate to be levelled at him. And fellow Christian, make sure you and I are blameless in the world. All right? Make sure you're blameless in the world. It's one thing to suffer for righteousness' sake, because of who you are. But if you've got to suffer because you're an evildoer, don't get all sooky and upset about it. You brought it on yourself. The Lord brought no cause for hate. And neither should we. So, summing that up, what have you got? You've got persecution, you've got hate, and you've got unbelief. And it's because of me, my name, and the fact that you are mine. And the lesson I want to bring from this first point of the four points about the upper room. One, we today have got to get a realistic mindset about the world in which we live and get a proper understanding and mindset about persecution. Really, and I I need to speak carefully because I fear it as much as anybody else fears it, and I'm horribly aware that we know precious little about it the little bit we're starting to get, we're so whinging and upset about. But if we lived in some countries, we'd fear for our lives just to gather here or try to gather here. And history is dotted, no it's not, it's covered with evidences of individuals persecuted, of groups persecuted, who suffered the most awful privations of living and in dying. If for us to talk about it, it's just like scratching the surface. But we've really had a bit of a misguided and a bit of a skewed idea of what it is to be a Christian, and uh, a bit of a wrong idea about persecution belonging to sort of other lands and other people. We have largely expected to be liked, to be respected, to be accepted, and to be appreciated. After all, we make a, Christians make a wonderful contribution to society. They have through history. Just study the history of the Western world and see what the, the churches and the hospitals and the Sunday schools and the education and the poor, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Thing we've done a tremendous contribution, and we sort of expect to be liked, respected, recognised, appreciated, but actually, no. The Lord's going to teach here very plainly that finally, ultimately, it is hatred and rejection, reproach and persecution that is the lot of every true Christian in the society in which they live. And that is starting to come home to us a little bit now, isn't it? Just a little bit. We're seeing the chilling winds of change, aren't we? Government, law, and general people's opinion and standards and desires, and they'll fixate viciously on that which is different. And steadily and gradually, the Christians becoming more and more persecuted in the West, and it's very likely to get a, a whole lot worse. In the week, I was listening to a sermon with Barbara to, uh, on, on, on Exodus, beginning of a series on Exodus, and it struck me when I was listening there, you know, you've got the children of Israel down in Egypt, haven't you? Terrible down in Egypt to be the, one of the children of Israel. You think of their bondage, making bricks without straw. You think of the male children getting destroyed. You, you think of their groanings and their pain. But wait a minute, it didn't start like that, all right? It started beautifully how they got down into Egypt. Remember, Joseph was over all the land. His brothers had rejected him, but somehow through the hand of God he rose up to be over all the land and predict the coming famine in the land of Egypt and across the lands and how he was put in charge. And what happened? He sent a message to his father when he found out. You know all the other story. I'm not going through it. He found out his father and his family were up there starving and his brothers 
And then Joseph sends a message, come down to Egypt, come down. Jacob and all his 70-odd sons and their wives and their daughters and children and so on, oh, down they came into the land of Egypt. I tell you what, it was good. Hey, it was good. They got their own land to live in. They got their own jobs to do as shepherds. And he, they were nourished every day. You see, the government was in favour because Joseph was the prime minister and Pharaoh was on the throne who knew Joseph and the blessings and it all worked well. Fellow Christians, we've had a little bit of time like that, perhaps more than we realise. And many a person who in the past who's been in power have known the blessings of Christianity. I don't necessarily mean they're all true Christians, but they've recognised it. I mean, Pharaoh wasn't one of the Israelites, but he recognised a Joseph when he saw him, right? And Joseph was the man raised up of God to nourish and bless his people. He was the deliverer of the people. And then you read on, and you know what it says? <clears throat> then there arose a Pharaoh, there arose up a Pharaoh over the land who knew not Joseph. And everything changed. They became, he looked and he saw the children of Israel multiplying everywhere. He saw them as a threat. Their way of life was different. Their, their jobs were different. Their God was different. And he says, they're going to rise up and going to overwhelm us, the Egyptians. And so what we've got to do is start to kill all the male children that are born. We'll make them our slaves. We'll bind them. We'll make their life miserable. We'll see to it that it doesn't happen that they multiply. Why? Because in government there was someone who knew not Joseph. And we have an authority in the West now. Those who know not God. That's why they'll do these things. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus taught here. And that is where we are going in church history in our day. And I really just want to press on our hearts to wake up to the day in which we live, to face the reality, to stop playing with the bubble it's burst long ago, and to understand hatred and persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ. When you, when you read through the scriptures... Well, if you read through church history, it's just a, a total graphic presentation of everything the Lord Jesus has said to be is true. And everything I've just said to you is an actual fact. You read through the scriptures and you'll find it over and over. You look at, and I'll just dot you through just to close off with, just dotting you the references. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the disciples are out there, they're preaching in the, in the city square, as it were, the town square, and they come and arrest them and tell them, don't you dare preach in the name. Fling them in prison. And they're in prison and an angel of the Lord comes along and lets the whole lot out and they go back down in the middle of the town and they do exactly the same thing all over again. And so they're seized in the morning by the rulers and they are beaten. All right? They're beaten. Now that's pretty solid. Now nobody, I don't think there'd be a person in this room that's been beaten for preaching the name of Christ. Oh, we're very brave. <laughs> I don't, there may be somebody, but... We're very brave. We talk glibly, don't we? This is reality, you know? It's like criticising Peter when he warmed his hands at the fire and said, I don't know the man. You know, the, 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 the opposition and the general society which he was in was going to spell trouble. And I, he feared, and that's all right. You and I are Peters at heart. So let's face the reality, right? And then they go back and they preach, and then they are beaten. And you know what they did? They got together afterwards and they said, it says in Acts 5.41, they were rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for his name. 
I'll open that up as we go along. You'll see why and what it brings out. They, they were actually rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Paul writes to the Philippians, and where they were obviously having great troubles in Philippi as well, and he says, look, unto you it is given, not only on behalf of Christ, to believe on him, but to suffer for his name. Paul continues to write to the Philippians, and he says, look, the passion of my life, he said, I've suffered the loss of all, everything, and he had, his religion, his standing, his status, everything. Everything about the man that he was before, he just gave it all away. He suffered the loss of it. Why? He said, that I might win Christ. That I might know him, listen, the fellowship of his sufferings. Can you believe that? He, wouldn't ex- he would exchange everything in order to get these things. And one of the things he wanted to have was to be to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Then he says, to know the power of his resurrection and so on. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, do you understand if you suffer with him, you shall also reign together with him. You know, as you suffer, he's saying, so your mind will be lifted up to something that lies ahead because it's a proof that you are one of his, you will reign with him and when you reign with him in glory, he will, you too will be honoured because you suffered, you will reign that much better as it were in the sense that you will more richly display the glory of the Lord in your future reign in that world to come, whereof we speak. That's what he's saying there. Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul lists off all the things that happened to him. How he was persecuted, he said, but I wasn't forsaken. I was cast down, but I was not destroyed. He said, actually, it's all that it is, is a momentary light affliction. Well, I tell you what, one bleak cold morning they just took the Apostle Paul on the side of the road there and they took him out in the scrub as they were and chopped his head off they killed him whatever they did and yet he says it's a momentary light affliction why is he saying that he is saying that because he's thinking of the glory that lies ahead remember all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution Remember what it says again. We can glory in tribulation. These things are beyond me. I'm telling you what it says to challenge you as it's challenged me. To actually say you would glory in the fact. You would rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. We need to get a correct mindset about persecution. About expected rejection. And the meaning and reason for hate. Have your mindset in the word of God. Indeed, Peter brings it out in his first epistle. He covers it for you very, very nicely when he says, let me find it and I will read it to you. In chapter 4, he begins by saying, look, he says, uh, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which has come to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. Oh, you know, in the last five years, things in Australia have changed so much. It's never used to be like this, where Christians were so lampooned and such evil laws were enforced and such measures set up which are absolutely frightening. I wonder why this is all happening. It must be because people are so wicked. No, no, it's not strange. It's all part of following the Lord. Don't count it as strange, he says, 
<coughs> as though something strange has happened, but rejoice. <coughs> in so much, now this is, look at that, rejoice again. In so much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Ah, look at that. I've never realised the importance that Scripture puts on being a partaker or in the fellowship of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you are having a little taste of what happened to him, but you are also joining him as a rejected man and knowing his strength and companionship and comfort. As he would say to everyone who faces that persecution, they did it to me, they'll do it to you. But lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Because he says, what else is going to happen? When his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. In other words, in that suffering, and you see this in history when you read, the people of God are starting to think about heaven. The people of God are starting to have that hope of the coming of the Lord's return. If you think about it in the last 20 years or so, that real hope of the believer, that hope of the church, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, has actually got dimmer and dimmer because somehow or other we thought we could make heaven on earth. We could have all that we ever wanted. We just had to pray for it and believe in it. We didn't need to get sick because miracles can be done. We didn't need to be poor because God never meant anybody to be poor. We didn't have to live in a pov old house because God meant us to live in a mansion. We don't have to drive an old buggy. You know, you can drive a Rolls Royce. You understand the idea? That's been the thinking. And we thought we can bring heaven on earth. You never, never will. Never will. And these believers that have suffered in the past, and indeed what makes us rethink now of what may well lie in the present, the whole point about it is you're thinking of a time when his glory shall be revealed and you will also rejoice with exceeding great joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, or if you suffer... Persecution, because you name his name, because you're a Christian, happy, blessed are ye. Now look at this next one. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I, I'm not going to attempt to explain that because it's, it's, it just leaves me going, I wonder what that, I wonder what that means. There seems to be, in this time of persecution, a special sense of Glory, the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. And you know, just stop and think a minute. You must have, you must have touched just some little, little bit about that with whatever little persecution we have faced. You know, the scoffing at the workplace. They scoff at you. They laugh at you. You know you're not one. They know you're not one. And sometimes, and I can remember in my own life, you're very, very timidly, scared spitless, as it were, having to stand up for the Lord and say something, and then he choked you with embarrassment. Yet afterwards, it was no doubt that something came on your spirit that brought you such peace. You just think, this is wonderful, I could, I could speak. I could take the name of Jesus with me, child of sorrow and of woe, right? Take it then, where'er it will strength and comfort give you. Take it then, where'er you go. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runs into it and is safe. And we'll just finally close with what the Lord Jesus says in his own teaching. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, 
It lifts you up from the here and now to the glory about to be revealed. The glory of the wondrous by and by in the sweet by and by when we look on his beautiful face, when we stand by his side as redeemed and we'll sing of his glory and grace. That is a sweet by and by. May the Lord lift us up this morning. Learn the lessons. Yes, expect it. Persecution, number one. It is a privilege, number two. It is a blessing, number three. It's the fellowship of his sufferings, number four. It will make you think of heaven, number five. And it will mean so much when you get there, for he will have not forgotten one deed done for him. He will not forget one reproach that you've borne because of him when we see him in the glory by and by. May God bless us all this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, these things are truths that we fain would grasp this morning and pray that our spirits might be instructed, our hearts may be comforted and encouraged, and our God and Father, we might be of good comfort, for we have a Saviour who we follow, who has already, in victory, overcome the world. We think of what they did to him. We think of the life of reproach that he lived, and of rejection. Our God and Father, we are grateful that we have a high priest who knows all about our infirmities and our life's situation having lived through them in victory himself who would stoop and strengthen us in our time of need. So Lord, encourage our hearts this morning. Help us to look up ahead at the glory that is about to be revealed. It will never compare with the sufferings of this present age. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our portion and our blessing as we leave this place and go into that hostile world in the good of these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.